over these days and weeks, we've been exploring our experience, getting to know our experience as human experience. When we first start looking at our experience, noticing what's happening, most often we notice maybe what would be called the specific characteristics of experience as we attune and attend to our human experience. We notice that body sensation is pressure and pulsing and tingling and vibration. We do begin to kind of drop underneath the ideas of experience and touch into what the experience actually feels like. And then as we keep exploring, as mindfulness gains momentum, as there's a little more continuity, it seems that the wisdom that grows as we explore experience, the wisdom that grows begins to get interested in what we've called the more general characteristics of experience. Bhante used this phrase the other day when he talked about anicca, dukkha, anatta. They're sometimes called the three general characteristics of experience, that all experience, whatever is happening, whether it's body sensations or emotions, moods, thoughts, sights, sound, has these characteristics of impermanence, unreliability, not a reliable place for the mind to find lasting happiness, and not-self. So our practice tends to head in this direction towards the curiosity about impermanent experience and as a kind of a recognition from that we see it is unreliable. Also, the impermanent nature of experience all experience, including what we think of as I, me, mine. We see that too comes and goes. So impermanence, the seeing of impermanence is pointed to over and over again in the suttas as how our mind begins to let go of its habits and patterns. The meeting of experience, of our direct experience of human body, mind, begins to point out to us that every single arising experience is impermanent. It will pass away, including this sense of self. And so the impermanent nature of experience is really highlighted 
as onward leading to the release of the mind from its craving, clinging, stress, suffering. There's a quote from the suttas. The Buddha says, and this is in relation to the aggregates, sometimes the Buddha will point to impermanence through various aspects of experience. In this case, he's pointing to it through the five aggregates. He says, form is impermanent. Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. Seeing thus, so actually experiencing form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness as impermanent. Not just kind of hearing about it and thinking about it, but actually seeing the impermanent nature of our experience, he says. Seeing thus, one experiences disenchantment towards form, disenchantment towards feeling, disenchantment towards perception, disenchantment towards volitional formations, disenchantment towards consciousness. Experiencing disenchantment, one becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, the mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge. It is liberated. One understands. Done is what had to be done. Destroyed is birth, the holy life has been lived. Done is what had to be done, and there is no more for this state of being. It is liberated, the mind liberated from craving, liberated from clinging, liberated from greed, aversion, and delusion. And it points to the seeing of impermanence as kind of the slanting, sloping, inclining towards, I think Diana used that phrase the other day, inclining towards freedom, slanting, sloping, inclining towards freedom. As we see impermanence, our mind heads in that direction. Here it says, seeing thus, seeing the impermanence of form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, one experiences disenchantment. So it's a kind of a natural occurrence, a natural arising. There's another sutta that talks about this kind of place in practice. It actually connects with the teaching I spoke about last time at the kind of the end of my talk, the teaching on transcendent dependent origination. And these two qualities, disenchantment and dispassion, are found in that list. I actually did mention them in my talk, and I'd like to kind of land with these two words a little bit more today, explore them with you, how the, the, the path of practice 
may unfold in this terrain as the mind begins to let go. In one sutta, the um, path of the movement towards freedom is described as a very natural unfolding. It says, when, when one has faith, there's no need for an act of will, may joy arise. That as there is this kind of confidence, oh, there's a way, there's a path, there's something I can do. And if a delight leaps up in the heart, that, oh, there's a possibility for freedom. So it says there's no need for an act of will to try to make delight arise. And it goes on in saying that when there is delight in the mind, there's no need for an act of will, may joy arise. And it goes through these steps of the the movement in the direction of freedom. There's no need for an act of will. It's natural that in one with delight, happiness arises. One with delight, tranquility arises. And then in a place in the sutta, it talks about happiness leads to concentration. Concentration leads to seeing things as they are. And this includes basically seeing these three characteristics, seeing the nature of experience, the very nature of every single thing that happens as impermanent, unreliable, not self. Concentration is a supportive condition for seeing that, seeing that nature of experience. And then it it says, when one sees things as they are, sees things as impermanent, unreliable, not self, there's no need for an act of will, may disenchantment arise. It is natural that disenchantment will arise in one who sees things as they are. And it says the same about dispassion from disenchantment. So this is understood at a certain point as kind of being like um, water running downstream, water running down hills and rivers. It's, it's like the nature of water is to run downhill. So at a certain point in practice, it, it, instead of the hindrances and our habits of mind kind of having the upper hand and it feeling like, well, when I relax and just like, you know, don't do anything, then what happens is I get swept away in thought at a certain point in practice, there's a, a kind of a momentum in the direction of freedom. Gil Fronstahl sometimes says the, there's a kind of a, a biological movement in that direction, a biological imperative towards freedom. When we begin to touch into experience as it actually is, that biological or kind of natural inclination of mind towards freedom begins to lead 
instead of our hindrances leading. So exploring these two words, disenchantment and dispassion. So disenchantment is a Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation of the Pali word nibida, which I, I particularly appreciate this particular translation because it does feel in a way like what happens at this point in practice. We, we begin to really see when we see things as deeply impermanent at a very moment-to-moment level. Our system begins to really understand and feel that it does not make any sense to cling to something that is slipping away. And so the habits, the patterns of greed, of wanting to, you know, to hold on to something, of wanting to get rid of something, those habits and patterns are, are seen as relying on the delusion or the enchantment that things are permanent, that there is something reliable out there. These are very deeply conditioned habits, though. It's not like seeing impermanence, even at a really deep level, seeing impermanence once or twice kind of completely uproots that tendency. It begins to kind of wear away at it. And so this seeing of the impermanent nature, even as it is wearing away in this gradual way, seeing of the um, impermanent nature of experience, the unreliable nature of experience, begins to show us that we have been confused. Those vipalasa, taking what is impermanent to be permanent, taking what is unreliable to be reliable, taking what is not self to be self. And the habits and patterns of mind have kind of enchanted us to believe that they're helping us. And to believe. It's, it's kind of amazing to me sometimes when I look at what's happening in the mind. You know, when I was really caught by self-hatred, it was hard to understand, you know, why would my mind choose to do this? But just watching it over and over again, I began to see the, the kind of the security it found in a familiar pattern. There was something in there, some, something that it thought it was doing for me. And so enchanted. We can be enchanted by self-hatred. It's not typically what we would think of being enchanted by, but whatever habits and patterns we have, there's some part of our of the the momentum of that habit and of that habit or pattern that thinks it is making us safe somehow, making us feel grounded or loved in some fashion. It's 
making us feel like things are a little less vulnerable somehow. So as we begin to really see the impermanent nature of experience, we we looking at what's happening in our in our minds looking at clinging looking at craving looking at suffering whatever's coming up we don't have to wait for it to be really um um as we've we've said we don't have to actually wait for the hindrances to go away in order to see the impermanent unreliable nature of of even those things and at one point on a retreat, I kind of had this amazing kind of recognition around some of these patterns and habits. It's like, oh, the mind is really reaching out to try to find some place to land and to hold on. And, and that, when the first recognition was that that craving and that clinging was a habit of mind. And that sometimes with something going on, it would... Uh, the, the mind would kind of go for that habit and it would suffer. As, as I was experiencing, I mean, this is one of the parts of practice. It's, you know, when we see the clinging, when we see the craving with mindfulness, we feel the suffering of it. And that's not a mistake. It's actually how the mind begins to get an education, how it begins to educate itself that, oh, this is not so helpful. And we begin to see, too, that it's optional. You know, it's, it's, it's like, it's not, it's not like the thing is making us crave it. Our mind is constructing the craving. And so seeing that, seeing, oh, the mind is doing this. The mind is constructing this, this idea that it needs this thing. So the mind is like, making stuff up there. So there's a little bit of enchantment there that the, the, the craving, the clinging, thinks it needs to get something. And then I began to see, looking a little more at the experience, what was going on there, I began to recognize that what the mind was craving, you know, I thought it was craving something out there, whether it was a good meal or you know, pleasant sense experience or getting rid of unpleasant sense experience, which tended to be my, my go-to thing. That I felt like if I could get rid of the unpleasant experience, then I'd be okay. That the, uh, the mind thought it was, you know, trying to reach out and do something with something out there. But as I looked at this, I began to see what the mind is craving is also something in the mind. It's an idea. It was an idea that there was something unpleasant that was actually there and lasting and permanent. And so not only is the craving and the clinging a product of our mental activity, our mental creation, but the thing we think we're craving and clinging is also a creation of our minds. We cannot actually cling to something that is impermanent. And so our mind makes up an idea and clings to an idea. Having that thing. Check it out for yourself. See, what is it that you are actually craving? What are you 
actually craving when the mind is reaching out. So not only is the, you know, and and that construction of mind, that's also an impermanent, unreliable phenomenon. And then the me that I think needs to do this, that's also something made up by the mind. So seeing all of this construction in the mind, this is another way that we become disenchanted. That we begin to see, yeah, this whole project is like, it's all the mind just like looking at itself and doing stuff inside. It's kind of crazy. And yet it is a craziness that we all share. We are not alone in this kind of habit and pattern of wanting to get something, wanting to get rid of something. Very deeply conditioned enchantment. It's, a, it's an enchantment we share as human beings. It's, it's the rare person that can see through this on their own, as the Buddha is said to have seen through it on their own. The rest of us need some help. Bhikkhu Bodhi pointed out in, um, in an article that he wrote about this topic that the word nibida which he translates as disenchantment, literally means, the literal meaning of the word nibida is finding out. And so essentially the seeing of the impermanent nature of experience helps us find out that we've been going about our looking, the project of finding happiness in completely the, in a mistaken way. So Bhikkhu Bodhi describes, in this article I mentioned, he describes the experience of disenchantment like this. Nibbita signifies the serene, dignified withdrawal from phenomenon, which supervenes when the illusion of their permanence, pleasure, and selfhood has been shattered by the light of correct knowledge and vision of things as they are. So there's a kind of a, with disenchantment, there's this kind of a, the recognition that there's no point in clinging or craving to something. There's a kind of a natural withdrawal from wanting to crave, wanting to cling, to have that pattern. And yet, in the experience of this process, in my experience, this time in practice of seeing the impermanent nature and beginning to recognize the mind has been confused, that it has been enchanted and is no longer kind of um, able to hold up its ideas and beliefs quite as strong, It is a bumpy place in practice. It is a hard place in practice to uh, begin to 
really deeply see that what we relied on for our whole way of being and living and finding happiness is completely mistaken, our minds don't just go, oh yeah, I'll serenely withdraw from that. (laughs) They kick and scream and fight and say, no, there's got to be some place. Maybe that thing isn't, uh, isn't worth clinging to, but there's got to be something. There has got to be. So deeply conditioned is this habit of trying to find something to land on, to hold on to, permanently find a place to find happiness. So the experience at this point, when we're really seeing into the impermanent nature of experience, particularly seeing how things fall away. How there's, you know, when we're seeing the arising of things, when we're seeing the, the, the arising side of impermanence, it can be quite delightful. Even seeing the arising and passing of things can be quite delightful. When we start to see that things are just always vanishing, slipping away, it feels really unstable feels like there's like really shaky ground. And so there are some emotional kind of uh, um, responses to this time in practice. And I think that these, it's like resistance, different flavors of resistance to becoming disenchanted. So sometimes it's... um, Kind of a there's a there's a way that nibida is sometimes translated as, it's sometimes translated as disgust or revulsion, and I don't usually like to use that as the usual translation, but I have experienced at times the quality in really seeing the impermanent nature of experience, seeing things just slipping away. I just kind of like oh enough or in experiencing, kind of like feeling like I'm being impinged on by sense experience incessantly. Like, enough already, enough. It's like, give me a break. So I can kind of feel like that that place of of, uh, revulsion or um, disgust of like, yeah, there's just like, won't this ever stop? So one of the the reasons for naming some of these relationships, I'm going to name several different flavors of relationships, is because um, the way through this bumpy time of practice is not by um, like trying to force yourself to be with that impermanent, uh, you know, slipping away experience to which there's so much like, Ah, this is horrible. Sometimes it feels like fear and terror, even it can get that strong. Like there's nowhere I can, there's nothing to land on. It's just like the mind just does not like these truths at a very deep level. It doesn't like these truths. And so it, re- it relates to them in these ways. It relates to them with, with disgust, with revulsion, with fear, with terror. And the way through it is not by trying to force yourself to stay with the 
uh, impermanent experience, but to notice the relationship. The path deepens at this time of practice by recognizing the fear, the terror, and noticing the relationship to this truth of impermanence. Because basically what's happening there is the system is is kind of sending up its flares of, no, it can't be this way. And it's just an arising, it's an arising experience of, no, it can't be this way. And how that's coming out sometimes is fear, terror. Sometimes the flavor of the relationship is... Um, one of my teachers in Burma, Sayadaw Ujjanaka, used this flavor. Um, he said homesickness. At times the feeling can be that. And that I related to that. It's kind of like the feeling of losing our familiar ways of landing in this world to find some comfort. Those are gone. It feels like you've lost a home lost some place to kind of snuggle in and say, I'll be safe here. Sometimes it can have that quality, oh, homesickness. Sometimes it can have the flavor of um, just a kind of disinterest. At one point, I was watching just this, you know, just like this incessant nature of experience. And and at first it was kind of like, enough already, enough, you know, can't you stop? And so noticing that, noticing the fear, noticing all of that, watching the fear then dissipate, there's this this incessant nature of experience and it's kind of the mind is kind of, oh, it's just not interesting. So disinterest then, it's like, oh, okay, the mind isn't interested. And it was an interest, this is an interesting um, place to kind of recognize. And I think that the, the knowing of disinterest can be useful at many places in practice. Even if it's um, at a time in practice where you're not actually seeing the depth of impermanence, sometimes we get kind of bored or disinterested. But that's a time where you know, the mind will tend to wander if you don't notice it. And so in this particular situation, noticing the impermanent nature, it's just like, oh, well, there's disinterest happening. And I did notice that the mind would kind of slip out with the disinterest. It's like it got so disinterested, it didn't like, you know, it's just like, yeah, let's just not, not pay attention. And I would wake up second later, like lost in some thought. It's like, wow, how did that happen? I was right there. Okay, there's disinterest. Disinterest slipped out. Just keep noticing that that relationship. And back to just kind of exploring the, the, ex, uh, the, the quality of disinterest in general. Kind of early in my practice, earlier in my practice... Um, I noticed a kind of state of mind of boredom, of like, you know, done with this, I don't want to practice anymore, you know. So so that, that would arise in my mind. Not wanting to practice would arise in my mind. And at one point, 
you know, at, at first when this was happening, I felt betrayed by my mind. Like, I was telling myself, I do want to practice. Trying to, like, shut down that belief. I do want to practice. Not wanting to practice, not wanting to practice. And I felt like either I had to believe that thought and stop practicing, or I had to get rid of the thought. Like It was not okay for that thought to simply be an arising. I didn't see it as just an arising. And then I had the great um, fortune one day to, at in Burma, uh, practicing, we, we kind of listened to everybody else's interviews, everybody else's meetings. We all got... We got in there at the same time, and the first person who was who was describing their experience got to report and then leave, but the rest of us got to hear everybody else's descriptions. And I got to follow one person who was, it was so clear, um, she was in a really continuous state of mindfulness, and I was like, wow, she's really right in there. And she reported very ma- matter-of-factly, not wanting to practice arose, and I noted not wanting to practice I was like, you can do that? (laughs) It was a revelation to me. The mind is not interested. Disinterest is arising. Boredom is arising. And it can be a flavor at this particular point in practice of the seeing of the impermanent nature of experience. And the practice deepens it's like the, the mind begins to let go of those kinds of wishes that it weren't so that it's impermanent. You know, we have it's like we just so deeply wish it weren't so. But the letting go of that happens through the seeing of those relationships. Wishing it weren't so, wishing it were otherwise. That's what's happening. Fear there's no place to land, that's what's happening. As the mind um, begins to align with the truths instead of resisting them, the mind more naturally moves in this direction of dispassion, of a deeper letting go. The mind begins to deeply understand that holding on to something that is slipping away just does not make sense. And so the mind, the, the, the kind of um, movement towards clinging begins to release. The word for this in Pali, viraga, often translated as dispassion. And I mentioned the other day that the word dispassion can have some kind of, potentially have a a kind of a negative feeling for us. You know, we want to have some passion, like compassion. We like compassion. With passion, compassion. Dispassion sounds dry, sounds not caring, sounds not connected. And so that's part of the reason I want to explore this word and this terrain a little bit, just to maybe reorient the mind to what happens at this point in practice. 
So the word itself, viraga, uh, the raga part is, the literal translation of that is a dye, a hue, a color, a deep color. And the, the viraga means the fading of a dye, the fading of that intensity. Sometimes the analogy for sense desire is the um, in the the hindrances the the colors the swirl of colors in in a bowl of water how we just get enchanted by the swirl of colors the the raga the colors there and so the uh, the we raga is the kind of the fading of the interest in the colors of the experience. So this term, fading, the dye fading, I mean, when we think about how that happens, you know, you might put a cloth in the sun for a long time, and just gradually it will fade. It will begin to kind of bleach out as a natural process. And so the the word itself indicates, a, possibly indicates a kind of a gradual process of letting go. There are some descriptions of how the gradual letting go might happen. The Buddha describes in one place how the attachment for sensual pleasures faded for him. He said, I abandoned the craving for sensual pleasures, removed the fever for sensual pleasures, and I abide without thirst with the mind inwardly at peace. I see other beings who are not free from the lust for sensual pleasures, being devoured by craving for sensual pleasures, burning with fever for sensual pleasures, indulging in sensual pleasures, and I do not envy them nor do I delight therein. Why is that? Because there is a delight apart from sensual pleasures, apart from wholesome states, which surpasses even divine bliss. Since I take delight in that, I do not envy what is inferior, nor do I delight therein. So it, this kind of points to a kind of different levels of what what can fade attachment to things that can fade there's a the craving for sensual pleasures is kind of a first level that might fade and and we might kind of um at first as we meditate we might begin to taste some of the kind of ease and peace of some of the wholesome states a little bit of um you know the concentration perhaps that might arise and that, those wholesome states that arise, begin to give us a contrast to the, the pleasure, the sensual pleasure of having some sensual pleasure. And we begin to see, oh, you know, the mind, by, by relying on that, by relying on the, the kind of the experience of some of these wholesome states, can begin to abandon and let go of the reliance on sense pleasure. And yet the Buddha says, there is a delight 
apart from I actually read it wrong. It's apart from unwholesome states. But there's another place where the Buddha does say that we should not even cling to wholesome states. He talks about the simile of the raft, where um, he says, you know, if you've crossed over a flood, and in this case the flood is a simile for greed, aversion, and delusion, you've used a raft to cross over the flood. So while crossing over the flood, you probably had to hold on to the raft. The raft is an analogy for the Eightfold Path. You have to make effort. You need to hold on to the, to the raft while you're in the midst of the flood. And so there is some sense of like using the wholesome states of the Eightfold Path while you're crossing the flood. It's allowing you to abandon, to let go of, to transcend, to to cross over the flood. And and yet he says, once you get to the other side of that flood, would you pick up the raft and carry it around on your head saying, this has been useful to me to cross the flood, so I'll take it with me? He said, you wouldn't do that because it's no longer useful. And so he says, and so we should abandon even wholesome states. How much more so should we abandon unwholesome states? And so by relying on wholesome states, we can begin to abandon unwholesome states. And then by relying on understanding the impermanent nature of wholesome states, we can begin to abandon wholesome states. By seeing that they too are just phenomena. So different levels of attachment. We may get attached to the practice. I certainly have and still am at times. And then I see, oh right, clinging to investigation. That's what's happening right now. So there may be different levels of fading away by relying on this, abandon that. We can begin to let go of... I mean, if I had tried to let go of the wholesome states while self-hatred was running amok, it would not have been very pretty. So the kind of the relying on, kind of holding to, yeah, I need to be mindful of this. I need to direct my attention. I need to know what's happening here. That began to allow the mind to let go for that attachment to fade, for that. And then, and then the, the whole kind of attachment to those ideas and beliefs of I'm no good, it's like those don't have much traction in the mind anymore. So the, the habits and patterns fade. But then there's still others. So it's not like one like big searing insight that like, There's a gradual unfolding, a gradual nature to this. And the Buddha talked about that over and over again, the gradual path. So 
So there is this fading aspect of dispassion, the fading away of our attachment to things that can, we can kind of notice. The Dalai Lama kind of famously has said, you know, look at your trajectory of your practice over the course of five or ten years. Look at what's changed. You know, you, you will notice that things are no longer kind of so sticky over a long course of practice. There may still be some sticky things, but you can kind of take some appreciation, some delight and joy in what has been released. And there are times in our practice where, especially on a long retreat, where we see into something so clearly the mind lets go of a clinging and we feel like it's so obvious why picking anything up is not a good idea. It's so obvious that craving causes suffering. Craving and suffering arise together. It's so obvious that the mind just stops doing it. And it seems so natural. so clear like how can I not see this and then ten minutes later (laughs) the mind is caught again wanting something and feeling like it's got to have that thing seeing that at at multiple times (laughs) I began to like recognize well I guess it is actually not that obvious It seems so obvious when greed, aversion, and delusion are not active in the mind. The clarity of non-clinging and the value of non-clinging is really obvious. But as soon as greed re-arises, the belief of greed that I need something, it's like it just obscures that understanding. And so... And yet we can in that, um, having seen something so clearly, I did begin to recognize over time, seeing, oh, that, that isn't a, it's not like I fooled myself. For the first few times looking back, it's like, I must not have seen that. It's just like, you know, if, if it was so clear, then it would still be clear. And I thought that I had deluded myself. This is delusion talking. I thought I had deluded myself into thinking that I was seeing clearly. But that was delusion talking. So, So this understanding, insight itself is impermanent. It comes and goes too. And yet once we've seen through something once we've seen through or understood something, then when the delusion comes back, the understanding isn't completely gone. It may not be active, like it may not be that that wisdom is, is, is shattering that delusion in the moment, but we can know in that moment, oh, the mind is confused, the mind is deluded, the mind is enchanted again. The mind has been enchanted again. So we can know that because we've seen it without that enchantment. 
And so this is how we can actually start to see delusion working in the mind. It's not, it's not, it's like, it's not a problem actually that the delusion comes back. It's just the, the momentum of that habit re-arising. And yet now we can see, oh, there's that habit re-arising. We can see, oh, this is the mind caught by thinking it's useful to cling again. And so seeing that there can be a little more space to hold it just as another arising and not to kind of get all caught in it again. We can know delusion. So there's a aspect of dispassion that's also connected to letting go There's a passage um, about freedom, about Nibbana, that basically equates dispassion and Nibbana, this quality of mind that is just not moving to pick up craving, not moving to pick up anything. So the, the definition of freedom, this is peaceful, this is the sublime, that is the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. The relinquishment of all attachments, dispassion. Another definition for nibbana, freedom, is the absence of greed aversion and delusion. We could also say the non-arising of greed, aversion, and delusion. This came up in response to a question Bhante responded to the other day. Somebody asked if the Buddha, after his awakening, experienced any stressful qualities in the mind. His description of that state. I'll read the whole paragraph which describes the opposite of freedom. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind ensnared, one aims at one's own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and experiences mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, and the word is translated as lust here, is raga. It's that same word that we raga is the opposite of. If lust, anger, and delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin, at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and experiences no mental pain and grief. This is nibbana, immediate, visible in this life, inviting, attractive, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. No mental pain or grief experienceable in this life. The absence of greed, the non-arising of greed, aversion, and delusion. So dispassion, viraga, 
the absence of the arising of that raga, that movement, that craving, that wanting. Another way to understand dispassion is as the not picking up of something. Typically greed, aversion, and delusion will pick up and try to hold on to something. So a way into feel into this, I'm going to give two ways to feel into this. One is like to think back to something that you like loved as a child, some toy. You know, what was your favorite toy when you were five years old? Like, have you even thought about that? But what was that toy? And remembering perhaps your relationship to that toy over, over time. You know, there might, might have been a period of time where you just, you know, you loved that toy and it went with you everywhere. You would not, not put it down. And then as you aged, as you grew, that toy began to lose some of its interest for you. Very naturally. Just the aging process, the maturation process, that particular toy began to lose some of its appeal. And yet you might go back to it every now and then, find some pleasure in it, some comfort in it, and then lose interest. And and like now, here as an adult, where is that toy now? Is there any attachment or interest in it at all? So in that process of thinking about that, losing interest in a toy. Disenchantment is the process of the kind of losing interest, kind of the connection to it, the realizing it's not so interesting anymore. But going back maybe, is there anything still there? And losing interest again. and So the back and forth there. One finally lets go at a certain point. So that's the kind of the letting, the letting go, the, the experience of just not interested in that anymore. That maybe is the beginning of dispassion. But at a certain point, it's like interest, disinterest is just not relevant. Thinking back on that toy, is there any sense of interest or disinterest? It's just like, yeah, it's a thing. It's we don't even think of picking it up. Just it's not relevant to pick it up. It has no value in our lives to pick up that toy and play with it as an adult. That's kind of like dispassion. Not picking it up. It's just not relevant to pick it up. It's not like we hate it or like there's no... It's, it's like, it's just... The relationship is just not... It's not relevant. It's just an old... An old relationship that no longer makes sense. And that's kind of what dispassion is like. As I was looking at this talk today, I, one thing I do when I prepare for talks is to 
read through the suttas, look for, like today I was just like, where is the word we raga in the suttas? And I found one that I hadn't remembered in a while. It's an interesting sutta. It's very similar to the Bahia Sutta. There's a portion of the sutta that that um, gives that same teaching that the Buddha gives to Bahia about in the seen is only the seen, and the heard is only the heard, and the sensed is only the sensed. That's how you should train yourself, he says. But to this person, Malankya Puta, Mal- Malankya Puta, he starts with a little from a little different place before he gives them that that teaching that he gave to Bahia. He says, what do you think? The forms cognizable via the eye that are unseen by you, that have never before been seen, that you don't see, that are not there to be seen by you. Do you have any desire or passion for those? And he says, no. Just let this in sounds cognizable by the ear that have never been heard that you don't hear that are not to be heard by you do you have any desire or passion for those? for me as I reflected on this it kind of gave me a taste. I felt into that. Sight's not seen. It's like there is that, that quality of dispassion can be kind of tasted in the reflection on, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of things I know nothing about. There's no passion one way or the other. No interest or disinterest about things unseen. A little taste of that quality of dispassion. Smells cognizable by the nose that are not smelled by you, that have never before been smelled, that you don't smell, and that are not there to be smelled for by you. Is there any desire or passion in that? And then he goes on to offer the teaching for things that are heard, seen, sensed, cognized. In reference to the seen, let there be only the seen. As a way to, I think he gave him this kind of pointing, it's kind of almost a pointing out instruction for what dispassion might feel like. And then it's like, okay, for things that are seen, that's also possible. In the seen is only the seen. In the heard is only the heard. In the sensed is only the sensed. In the cognized is only the cognized. That's how you should train yourself. When for you in the seen there will be only the seen, in the heard, only the heard, in the sensed, only the sensed, in the cognized, only the cognized. Then there is no you in connection with that. Just seeing. <laughs>
just smelling, just sensing, just cognizing, a thought arising being known, no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This is the end of suffering. I'll end with a, another quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi about this process of moving in the direction of freedom, of disenchantment, of dispassion, of realizing Nibbana, of realizing the unconditioned, as it is sometimes called. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, Though the realization of the unconditioned requires a turning away from the conditioned, we could say the withdrawal from, the the dispassion from, requires the dispassion for the conditioned, it must be emphasized that this realization is achieved precisely through the understanding of the conditioned. Nibbana cannot be reached by backing off from a direct confrontation with samsara, with suffering, to lose oneself in a blissful oblivion to the world. The path to liberation is a path of understanding, of comprehension and transcendence, not of escapism or emotional self-indulgence. Nibbana can only be attained by turning one's gaze towards samsara, towards the conditioned, towards suffering, and scrutinizing it in all its darkness the understanding of the conditioned is the way to the unconditioned. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention and for your commitment to meeting your experience in all its darkness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.